Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Week in Politics here on the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. Our guests this time are Byline Times political editor Adam Bienkoff, fresh from the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham, and Sir John Curtis, politics professor at the University of Strathclyde and senior research fellow at both NatSen Social Research and the UK in a changing Europe. Before we speak to those two eminent guests, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hardeep Matharu, and it has exclusive content in the print edition that you can't read online. Now, we can report without fear or favour because there's no wealthy non-DOM or hedge fund billionaire, dare I say, it, telling us what to say. Our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So if you can, please subscribe to the Byline Times podcast. You get more details over at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Adam and John. And Adam, I'll have a quick word with you first because you're fresh, hot foot from the Conservative Party conference. What's your key takeaway? Yeah, so I've been going to Conservative Party conference for the best part of 10 years now. And they're normally pretty sort of upbeat, boosterish occasions. Uh, lots of Conservative MPs and activists justing together and, and having quite a good time and feeling pretty good, feeling like kind of kings of the world, really. This was the first time where it's very much did not feel like that. In fact, there were lots of activist MPs. Well, there, were, there weren't many MPs there for a, for a start, which was very unusual. But among activists and councillors, there was a real sense that they they believed that they're in a lot of trouble. And they were openly talking for the first time, really, about the prospect of going back into opposition. And what was particularly interesting about that is that some of them were sort of trying to find justifications for that, almost saying, well, maybe it would be a good thing if we go back into opposition. Maybe it'd be good if we could refresh ourselves, refresh our brand, come up with some new ideas, because we're not really sure what we as a party stand for anymore. And you always know that when a party start of government starts talking like that, that it's pretty clear that they're in a in a pretty worrying place. How big a problem for the people you spoke to, Adam, is Liz Truss, or how much of a, an opportunity, as it were, is she seen as by these Conservatives? Yes, well, we know that by historic standards, she is not a particular, she started off as not a particularly popular leader, even among her own party. In the first round of voting among Conservative MPs, she came in, in third place. She did win a majority of members, but not by a huge margin and lower margin than, than any of her predecessors. A lot of members said, when you, when you speak to them, said, oh, I, I didn't vote for Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. I didn't vote at all this time. So a lot of people kind of sat on their hands in this contest and they felt like it was forced upon them. But I think that overall members were were kind of wanted to give her a good chance and, and, and thought that she might be able to turn things around for the party after a difficult period under Boris Johnson. The problem has been in just a few short weeks, it's gone very, very badly for the Conservative Party. And although... There was a lot of problems under Boris Johnson, which you know we've we've dis discussed before, uh, particularly under Partygate. Partygate did damage the party's reputation. The difference between Partygate and what's happened in the last month is though, although lots of people were angry over Partygate and it did affect people felt personally agree, particularly if, if they'd lost a loved one during the, the pandemic. For most voters, Johnson's actions in Down Street didn't materially affect their lives. Whereas what we've seen in the in the past few weeks really does affect their lives. And I think 
when we look forward to the next general election, the, the sort of big question for the government will be, and for voters will be, do I feel better off or worse off? And I think it's pretty clear from what we're seeing of the economy at the moment that it's likely that most voters will feel worse off overall. And the second big question is, do I blame the government for that? And I think until the mini budget, the government were in a relatively good position in that they could say, yes, you know, the economy is bad, but it's bad globally. And a lot of this is down to the Ukraine war and, and Vladimir Putin. But, you know, here are the measures we're doing. We're protecting people's energy bills, et cetera, et cetera. And that was a relatively sort of strong position for them to be in. The big problem that Liz Truss has brought on the party, and, and I think well, I'm sure John will, will, will go on to in more detail on this, is, is that now it's a lot of voters are blaming the government because they can see very clearly, everyone can see that after the mini budget, there was a big collapse in the rating of the pound and a big increase in government borrowing, borrowing and guilts. And they can see it on their mortgage payments. Myself, like many other people, I've just had to renew my mortgage and I'm now several hundred pounds a, a month worse off. By the time of the next election, there'll be lots of people who are significantly more worse off than that as a direct result of what the, the government has done. And it's going to be very hard, I think, for the Prime Minister and for the Conservative Party to turn that around. Yeah, I was talking to somebody the other day who's going to be £300 a month worse off in mortgage payments, £200 a month worse off in energy payments, notwithstanding the government assistance. And I'm sure those are, those are fairly typical figures for many people. So, John, how is that feeding through then in the polls? We've seen some excitable headlines maybe suggesting that Labour had got a 33-point lead over the Conservatives in the polls. Is that a credible figure? Well, that's the highest figure at which anybody has put it. And of course, one of the first rules of journalism, it's always the exception that's used to try to prove the rule. But what has been true is that every single poll has recorded what has to be regarded as a precipitous decline in conservative support that is remarkably similar in scale, though even more remarkable in terms of speed, than what happened the last time a conservative administration got into trouble with the financial markets. That, of course, was Black Wednesday in September 1992, when the markets forced the pound out of the then European exchange rate mechanism that was meant to be part of our journey into the euro. In the wake of that, after about a month or so, there was a seven and a half point swing from Conservative to Labour. And the Conservatives never got back the lead in the polls again. In a little more than a week, the swing against uh, the Conservatives to Labour has been the order of eight percentage points, so even slightly bigger in a week than the reaction that there was to Black Wednesday uh, in a month. The advent of Liz Truss into 10 Downing Street had not produced much of a bounce, almost uniquely. I mean, nearly always. A party gets a new leader, well, we get a bit of a bounce in the polls. Well, uh, Labour's lead narrowed by a point between the beginning of September and the middle of September, not helped, of course, so far as Liz Truss is concerned by the death of Queen Elizabeth II, which put politics on hold for 10 days, including her ability to impress herself on the public. But anyway, the Conservatives were started off behind uh, with the fiscal event, but now well, on average by the end of last week or so, they were 25 points behind 
The two or three polls that have come out this week don't suggest that it's got any better. It certainly doesn't, don't, certainly don't suggest that the Conservative conference has given the party any kind of bounce at all. Perhaps in, in contrast to the Labour conference, and of course we do have to bear in mind that the financial difficulties, the difficulties on the, on the financial markets did occur at the same time as Labour conference. And therefore perhaps part of the reason for the rise in Labour support may have been because it did indeed have a pretty good conference. There wasn't much in the way of division. Sikir Starmer was thought to have given, by his standards, at least a relatively good uh, good speech. So we therefore should perhaps bear in mind that there's a bit of a Labour conference bounce in there, which maybe perhaps will disappear. But even so, this is a very, very serious drop in uh, Conservative fortunes. It's there across 10, 11 in completely different pollsters, and it does give uh, Conservative uh, MPs an awful lot to think about. Yeah, I'm always wary, John, of predicting the future from the past because each situation is unique. But has any party had a similar problem in the polls as the Tories do at the moment when in government and then gone on to win an election, as it were, against the odds? Well, it depends a little bit on what criterion you use, Adrian. So if we were to simply use the criterion of what share of the vote in the polls does a party command, then the truth is that the Conservatives in the spring and summer of 2019 were in an even bigger hole than they are at the moment. I mean, we had some opinion polls then putting the party below 20%. But the truth is at that time, the Labour Party wasn't profiting either. It was the Brexit Party and the Liberal Democrats who were doing well. We were talking about whether or not we were going to get a reshaping of the British party system. It certainly isn't the case that a party that's been this far behind in the polls, or certainly this far behind in the polls on a consistent basis for a considerable period of time, and being behind the principal opposition, has been been able to win at the next election. Now, but of course, you're quite right. We can't just simply say, well, history should repeat the past. But there, there are other bits of the history of 1992 that are also in place. So let me just briefly go through through them. And there are three of them. Number one is that in the wake of Black Wednesday, the Conservatives' reputation for economic competence was severely damaged. Now, Adam's already partly referred to this. It's perfectly clear from the opinion polls that the Conservative reputation for economic competence has also been damaged by what's happened in the last fortnight. I mean, before uh, last Friday, most polls had Conservative and Labour relatively neck and neck when asked which party can best run the economy. Now the opinion polls have Labour, if anything, about twice as popular as the Conservatives. It's almost 40 to 20. And again, the polls in the last week, those repeated the question, if anything, have suggested that the drift in that direction has moved yet even further. The second thing was that it severely damaged John Major's popularity. He was reasonably popular until Black Wednesday 1992. He'd, after all, managed to pull off a surprise fourth election victory in a row just a few months earlier. But he very rapidly became unpopular. Well, Liz Truss has certainly become rapidly very unpopular. Her poll rating again a few days ago, average net rating minus 37, even worse than Boris Johnson at the time that he was brought down as a Conservative leader at the beginning 
of uh, July. And again, if anything, the numbers suggest that her numbers are getting worse. And uh, J.L. Johnson, which is partly run by James Johnson, who was Theresa May's pollster in 10 Downing Street, has done one of those things that we that, that, that you call a kind of cloud. And you just give people a name or an entity and say, well, what comes to mind? In the case of Liz Truss, the word that above all dominates people's minds is incompetent. In mm. other words, there is a severe crisis of confidence amongst the electorate as to whether mistrust is up to the job. In any event, so here's your second element, that, that we now have a leader who's been severely damaged by what's happened last fortnight. And then the third element in this campaign, this takes us back to the politics. What did the Conservative Party divide over for the remainder of its term after Black Wednesday? Well, over the issue that was central to Black Wednesday, which was Britain's relationship with Europe. What now is the Conservative Party divided over? Well, it is indeed about the measures and what need, may, may subsequently need to, be, need to be taken in the light of those measures that were announced in the so-called fiscal event. The MPs have already forced the cut in the 45p rate to be abandoned. There is now a battle going on as to whether or not there should be cuts over welfare benefits. And it's pretty clear that a significant section of the Conservative Parliamentary Party do not necessarily buy into what is a very distinctive, certainly more right-wing message from Liz Truss than anything you got from David Cameron or Theresa May or Boris Johnson. I think we can argue about whether or not Liz Truss is even perhaps even more right wing than Margaret Thatcher, but leave that to one side. <laughs> um, which we are talk, we are we are talking about a party that is now seriously divided about its ideological direction. Again, in much the same way as it was in the 1990s. So certainly, all the ingredients that are there that caused the Conservatives never to recover from Black Wednesday. Now you're right. There's no guarantee this will be repeated, but I think what we have we can say is that the potential ingredients that will need to be in place for the Conservatives, in effect, not to have much chance of winning the election. All those ingredients are there. Now, maybe some of them will go, but unless some of those ingredients are reversed and are reversed fairly soon, then the Conservatives' chances in the next election do look pretty bleak indeed. Mm. Adam, uh, John touches there on the ideological bent of this government, and we've spoken on the podcast in various episodes over the last few days about the influence of the Tufton Street ideologues, right-wing think tanks like the Institute for Economic Affairs. We've also spoken about the influence, or apparent influence anyway, of hedge funds on Conservative Party policy and the fact that people who stand to profit sometimes from unfortunate events in our national life, have been donors to the Conservative Party. And there is a very different flavour to this Conservative Party than either the Cameron-led government, which was socially liberal, albeit very fiscally conservative, the populism of Boris Johnson. This has a flavour all of its own, and it is distinctly right-wing. It is, I would almost say, the politics of the leader writers of the Daily Mail and the Sun. It is very different. And when you look at the last general election in 2019, and you look at the kind of vibe of, if you like, of Boris Johnson's agenda back there, it was it was very different on which he, on which he won a, a significant majority. It, yes, it was about getting Brexit done, 
but it was also almost like a kind of social democratic platform of saying, you know, this is going to be about regional inequality and levelling up parts of the country. This is going to be about increasing public spending on services and improving your lives. What it wasn't about is cutting taxes for high earners and somehow this will lead to turbocharging growth and about you know, getting rid of bankers' bonuses. So it's an incredibly different platform. So what the Conservative Party have, have done is they've, they've got rid of a leader who, yes, he was very unpopular by the end, but he was a charismatic figure who, who was a good campaigner. But they've also got rid of the successful platform on which he stood for election in, in 2019. And so what they've replaced it with is both an unpopular and uncharismatic leader and an unpopular and divisive platform. And it's very difficult to see how that series of choices that the Conservative Party has made is going to lead to an election victory in two years' time. John, when we talk about these right-wing ideologues who, in the eyes of many commentators on Byline Times, have captured the government, when we talk about the links with hedge fund financiers who are Conservative Party donors. Does that play anywhere in the polling? Can you measure that? Well, yes, in a way. I mean, I think, you know, one needs to understand, in a sense, why this has happened. One of the consequences of COVID and the interventions that the government has had to make in the way in the wake of COVID, not least in uh, funding for the health service and one stage for social care, is that it did mean that the a conservative administration was presiding over record levels of taxation and record levels of spending. Even in 2019, you wouldn't necessarily have expected, and I doubt if Boris Johnson expected, that he would end up running a government that was heading in that direction. But in the end, it accepted that that was the direction which was running because Given the circumstance in which it found itself, that it decided, and particularly Rishi Sunak decided, that that was the only way that you could be fiscally responsible. And again, you know, part of what's going on here is that a tension between two traditional conservative principles. One is to be so-called fiscally responsible, that is, you know, not to borrow too much, and also, uh, however, to want a small state. And those two things are potentially in conflict in the current circumstances. Now, what Liz Truss was articulating was a concern that does exist inside the Conservative Party about finding itself in that position. But however, what also seems to be the case, and this is one of the, one of the messages of the British Social Attitude Survey, the latest edition of which came out uh, just the day before the fiscal event, and for which I'm one of the, the editors. And you know, that's a, a survey that's been charting over years the broad mood of the public, including on issues in taxation and spending and inequality. And the message that's been coming out from that is that, well, it was already the case before the COVID pandemic that there had been amongst the public something of a reaction against the austerity of George Osborne et al. And that whereas by the end of New Labour, which, of course, had increased public expenditure quite dramatically, and then we had the problems of the financial crisis, but it, whereas by then the mood was very much in the direction of look, we shouldn't be increasing taxation and spending anymore. We, need, we should be keeping a lid on it. By the time we were getting to the end of the Conservative Democrat coalition and leading up towards the COVID pandemic, we were in a situation where over half of people were saying, well, actually, you know, spending and taxation should go up. 
Now, what we would normally expect, this is what history suggests. History suggests that if governments start to increase spending and taxation, eventually the public react. Eventually, as in the case of New Labour, people start saying, well, actually, you know, the waiting times are down. Uh, school attainment is better. We should stop increasing taxes, which is, was, was the, the reaction of voters eventually by the end of the New Labour government. But so far, at least, there isn't any sign in British Social Attitudes data that that reaction that some people inside the Conservative Party has had in the wake of COVID is there amongst the broader public. And this, by the way, includes lots of Conservative supporters. So therefore, amongst the public, at least, a public, of course, which saw what the government could do over furlough and a public whose expectations in a sense, moves this supposedly small state government into spending potentially an awful lot of money on capping energy price rises, which was not, frankly, on Liz Truss's agenda um, at the beginning of July when she started the Tory, her Tory leadership campaign. But even so, they still wanted to insist on reducing taxation and therefore got themselves into a lot of trouble. But the point is, there certainly isn't clear on that criterion there's a mood for a small state. Equally, insofar as even the, the tax cuts that are left are ones that are going to benefit the better off more than the less well off. If anything, now British sociality is saying, well, actually, you know, we've got a, in the wake of COVID, in which there was a lot of argument about inequality and about how the pandemic illustrated that people living in multi in more multiply deprived areas and less more difficult circumstances were more likely to get the disease more likely to die from it etc that all of that had also seen public opinion become a bit more concerned about inequality and yet now we've got a government that says redistribution we don't care about it so certainly it's very difficult i mean in a sense i think the problem that Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng have, if we just look at it from their perspective, is that whatever the merits or otherwise of their particular perspective on what the state should be doing, they've come to power at exactly the wrong moment. They've come to power at a time when the state is for the second time having to be used in order to do something that the state's not previously done before. Once it's funded the labor market, now it's heavily funding the energy market. It's been forced into that by the circumstances in which it finds itself. And secondly, it's come to power at a time when the public mood is not in the direction in which they want to go. And in a sense, more astute politicians, less ideological politicians, perhaps would have realized that they needed to trim their sails in the short term if indeed they were going to have any realistic prospect of realising their long-term vision. I want to ask you, Adam, about one politician in particular, Suella Braverman. It was hard to imagine a Home Secretary who would be more hardline, more right-wing than Priti Patel, but it seems though we've got one in the new Home Secretary. Now, she's spoken in the last few days about banning cross-channel migrants from applying for asylum in the UK. If you cross the channel, she suggests you would not be given asylum, full stop. Whether that's legal by international law is another question, but that's what she's indicated. And she's also spoken out against her own government's potential trade deal with India, because mm. this might lead to further migration from India. She accused some of her fellow Conservative MPs at the conference that you attended of attempting to stage a coup against Liz yeah. Truss. But she herself 
is pushing policy, certainly that one with regard to India, which put her at odds with her own government. Yes. And as I said, there wasn't there weren't many Conservative MPs or cabinet ministers even at the conference, but she was she was everywhere. She attended lots of fringe meetings, spoke on many issues outside of her own brief and made statements which aren't government policy. And there is a tension there with Liz Truss on immigration. Yes, Truss has accepted the terms of the Rwanda policy, but actually she is on the libertarian right of the party and she is actually not opposed to immigration. She actually wants to relax immigration rules and to to make it easier for people to come to the UK. So there is that real tension there. And I think that further highlights the that kind of divide within the Conservative Party uh, and the divide within Brexit between those who said, oh, we're going to leave the EU so we can control immigration and spend more money on people in the UK and the sort of the fringe of the part of, of the Brexit movement who said it were actually libertarians and they they wanted Brexit so they could deregulate and they actually weren't that bothered about immigration. Even within that, Adam, then, there was a split, wasn't there, between people who wanted to end EU migration, the automatic right of other EU citizens to come and work and settle in the UK, yeah. and those who saw the potential for more migration from countries like Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, white South Africa, and so on, and those who just don't like migration at all, almost yes. full stop, really. And there is a further tension there, because... When you're looking at immigration and and Brexit and the and the EU and trade deals, there is a conflict between all of that and the, the positions of people like Suella Bremerman and the central line of Truss's speech, which is growth, growth, and more growth, and attacking people who are against growth. And we we know that you know one of the draws down on growth over the last ten years has been the decision to leave the European Union and the single market, which the government's own Office of Budget Responsibility suggests has led to growth being 4% lower or will will end up leading to growth being 4% lower mm-hmm. than it otherwise would have been. So there is a real sort of tension in, in, in Truss's message here. Really interesting what, what John was, was saying about voters not really sensing that the increase in spending that we've seen over the last year, uh, 10 years has kind of benefited them or they haven't felt that it's gone far enough. This idea of the anti-growth Coalition growth is actually quite a nebulous concept for most people. I mean, people don't go into voting booths and thinking, oh, what is the GDP percentage and how does it compare to previous governments? What they go in thinking about is, do I feel better off or worse off? And is it because of the government's actions or not because of the government's actions? And the sort of measures that that Trust is talking about, sort of you know, reforming regulation, supply side measures, they're just not going to have an impact on on how voters feel about those those things before the time of the next election. And the other problem with this this kind of anti-growth coalition argument that she was making is that governments do tend to do this. They try and find scapegoats and distract from their own record by sort of pointing to a sort of common enemy and, and drawing a dividing line, hoping that the that they're on the side with the public on one side of that line and, and their opponents on this side of the other dividing line. The problem trust government has is actually the people that they're identifying as being part of this anti-growth so-called anti-growth coalition is actually pretty broad. You know, it seems to include every other political party, half our own party, trade unions, environmentalists, broadcasters, you know, anyone who lives in North London, the Bank of England, CEO of Shell, <laughs> teachers, students, university. You know, the problem is you, you end up running out of people, to, voters to go on your own side of that dividing line. And also, 
the broader problem is it's all very well saying you're the party of growth, growth, growth. But, you know, growth has been pretty flat over the last 10 years. Partly, lots of economists argue because of the austerity policies that were pursued by the Conservative government, partly because of Brexit, and now partly because of the mini budget that Liz Truss released this month. So, you know, politics is it's about telling stories and convincing the public of, of the story that you're, you're telling them. And actually, when it comes to growth and the government's record on growth, Liz Truss and the Conservatives don't actually have a very good story to tell. Lessons that comes out of the party conference season as a whole however, is that in fact improving Britain's growth record is now emerging as a central issue in our politics because, you know, contrary to what Liz Truss was saying, a central feature of the Labour conference and of Sakir Starmer's speech was also the question of improving growth. What, however, I think we're going, now going to end up with if Liz Truss survives through to the election is two very different visions about how growth is going to be achieved. On the one hand, we've got Liz Truss's view, which is a kind of fairly standard right-wing view that you achieve it through a small state, deregulation, giving incentives to entrepreneurs. On the Labour side, we've got what for Labour is a somewhat new distinctive message, which is essentially saying, by focusing on trying to achieve net zero, we will achieve green growth, we will achieve sustainable growth. So both sides are talking about growth, but they've got very, very different visions of how we get there. But I think there is now a clear appreciation amongst politicians on both sides of our political divide that actually getting solving Britain's poor growth record has now become a central issue, a central uh, issue of public policy. Yeah. One final thought, John, when we're talking about the use of language, Liz Truss has referred to her government as the disruptors. Now, I can understand why if you're in business, you might want to be seen as the disruptor. I just wonder how you sell the idea of being a disruptor to a nation. The nation doesn't necessarily want to be disrupted, does it? People just want to be able to feed their families and get a roof over their head. It is indicative of the mindset of Liz Truss and her colleagues. They have a very, very firm set of ideological beliefs and they are determined to pursue them. So determined were they to pursue them that in the end, they engaged in behaviour that proved to be fiscally risky because they're operating on belief. They're not operating on evidence. And when you're in that position, then, of course, you are you are somebody who is who says, well, look, you know, yeah, I'm going to make the lives of people who don't necessarily believe what I believe in somewhat difficult and somewhat awkward. But that's her mindset. It's a combative mindset. It's a combative mindset, which in some senses clearly reminds one of Margaret Thatcher. It's also a combative mindset, by the way, of, of those on both sides of the Brexit divide, where, again, we often had very strong ideological perceptions are dominating people's view and a very strong antipathy between the two groups. Uh, It's uh, once again a reminder that ideology is still alive and kicking um, in British politics. John, it's been great to have you on. You can come back another time. Sir John Curtis, thank you. Thank you as well to Byline-Times political editor Adam Bienkoff. You can read more from Adam over at our website, bylinetimes.com, and, of course, in our newspaper, The Byline Times. Do subscribe if you can. You get more details about subscribing at the website at bylinetimes.com, and your subscriptions keep this podcast on the road. So if you have already subscribed, thank you very much indeed. We'll see you again soon now. Cheers. Bye-bye.